Well, uh, we are concluding our series, Reliance Values, today. We're looking at the eight values that shape and inform everything that we do uh, as a church. And so far, we've looked at seven of our values. Let's review them quickly. First of all, at Reliance Church, we value the Word of God. We trust God's Word as the only foundation for truth and our only hope for change. Secondly, at Reliance Church, we value prayer. We work like everything depends on us, but we pray like everything depends on God, because it does. We also value the leading of the Holy Spirit. We change the world one life at a time through the power of the Holy Spirit, who flows through men, not methods. Fourthly, our fourth value, we value unity. We are a diverse family that sticks together in a world falling apart. Our fifth value is spiritual growth. We develop a godly character through a lifelong commitment to learning. Our sixth value is missional living. We live out a genuine faith and we intentionally share that faith with others. And our seventh value is serving. We are contributors, we're not consumers. If you've missed any of these values, I encourage you to go online to listen to the message Uh, These are uh, critical values important to shaping our culture. Today we conclude with our eighth and final value at Reliance Church. We value leadership development. Here's how we articulate that value. We empower people to their highest calling. Now as we have seen, values are critically important to every organization. Every organization values are critically important. Why? Why? Because what we value shapes what we do, and what we do establishes our culture. Who we are is, def- is, is established by what we do day in and day out consistently. Now, we see this truth reflected in every culture, in the family culture, in the church culture, in the business world, in that culture. And without question, the two most important cultures in this world are the family and the local church. Those are the two most critical, important, critically important cultures in this world. Why? Well, because the purpose of both of those cultures, the culture of the family and the culture of the church, is to provide nurture and growth and development. They exist to help us to grow, to help us to mature, and to help us to live fruitful lives so that we can honor God, those two cultures, the family and the local church. Now, in order for that to happen, it all hinges on leadership. It all hinges on leadership. And not just any old kind of leadership. It has to be leadership that is reliable, and it has to be leadership that replicates itself. That's critically important. Tom Peters said this. He said, leaders don't just create followers. They create more leaders. In other words, the fruit of a true leader grows on the trees of other people. That's what I want you to get. That, that a true leader not, just, not only has followers, but he himself is replicating his leadership in other people. And the fruit of a true leader does not grow on his tree. It grows on the trees of someone else. And so there's a sacrificial element to that. Now, in order for that to happen, the Bible makes it clear That in both the family and in the church, leadership is required. 
We read in Ephesians chapter 5, the Bible says there that regarding the leadership in the family that men are to lead their wives as the head of marriage, just as Jesus is the head of the church. Again, in Ephesians chapter 6, it says there that fathers are to lead their children. Proverbs 31, 1 Peter 3 tells us that the wives also have a duty in leadership, that they are to exercise leadership in their homes. As well, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says that both husband and wife, parents, together, collectively, have the duty to lead the kids to the Lord. So there are biblical requirements of leadership in the family, and there's also biblical requirements of leadership in the church. We read in Ephesians chapter 4, Regarding the church, it says there that he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should <coughs> no longer be children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, verse 15, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. It's been said, so goes the leader, so goes the organization, so goes the family. And that is absolutely true. Everything rises and falls on leadership. John Maxwell said that. He also said this. He said, any endeavor you undertake that involves other people will live or die depending on leadership. And that idea of leadership, that idea of passing leadership on to other people, inspiring other people, that's the idea here in 2 Timothy. As we read now, 2 Timothy, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. <clears throat> and also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Paul concludes that thought this way. He says, consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Now, Timothy is a letter written by an older pastor to a younger pastor. And the older pastor, of course, is Pastor Paul. 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul will ever write. He's in prison. He's been imprisoned for his faith. And he knows that he's pretty much exhausted every avenue that he can exhaust to appeal his case. And he knows that death awaits him and certainly he will be beheaded for his faith. So these are the final words, and he knows that these are the final words, and so he is choosing his final words very carefully to encourage this young pastor. And of course, the young pastor he's talking to is Timothy. 
Timothy is, at this point, uh, a pastor who's been in ministry for about 15 years, and, and he's in his mid to late 30s, so uh, he started his ministry very early as a young man. And at the time of this writing, Timothy's burned out, he's tired, and, and it would seem maybe that he just by nature is a little timid to begin with. And, and what Paul's doing, he's writing to encourage him to keep fighting. And that's something that everybody in ministry can, can appreciate, right? Everybody in ministry gets tired, everybody in ministry gets discouraged, everybody in ministry needs to be encouraged to keep fighting. By the way, we are all in ministry, every last one of us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, if you've invited Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you are in ministry. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that we are a royal priesthood. That, that we are a chosen generation. And, and our responsibility, our duty, is to produce fruit in our lives that will last. And so everybody's in ministry, whether it's parenting, whether it's your 9 to 5 job, whether it's mowing your lawn, changing a diaper, taking out the trash, doing your homework if you're a student, serving in whatever capacity. Everybody is in ministry. It's all ministry. What you do, and it's either ministry, you're either ministering to your flesh, you're either ministering to your sinful desires, or you're ministering to the Lord. The Bible says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And that's the trick, isn't it? Doing what you do. To the glory of God. Think about that. Just think about your week. Just think about the week that you have lived. It's kind of convicting when you take a walk with whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And you go, wow. You step on the scale and you go, wow, God, I haven't really glorified you in my eating. Or, or, or you, you, uh, you, know, you think about driving down to the family's house on Thanksgiving and braving the 91 freeway, and you think, I'm an idiot. I should have left last night. What am, what's going on? And then you realize, no, I'm not an idiot. He's an idiot. Get out of my way, you moron. You know? and, and you think, oh, gosh, am I glorifying God and how I'm living my life? And <clears throat> so we have to understand, man, it, glorifying God is difficult. Because life is wearisome, and ministry is wearisome. And certainly, as I said, Timothy's dealing with this. You look at verse 1 there, where Paul's encouraging Timothy to be strong and to endure. Do you know that this is one of 25 times that Paul has to encourage Timothy to be strong and to endure? And that tells us either Timothy is timid and easily discouraged, or he has a very difficult assignment in Ephesus, which is where he's ministering, or that he's just normal, right? That just the normal day-to-day course of living our lives and ministering and trying to do our best to do everything as ministry is under the Lord, it can be burdensome, it can be wearisome. And so what Paul says here is he says, therefore, my son, be Strong, And I want you to notice where Paul says that we get this strength. He says that we get it in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. I want you to think about God's grace for a minute. 
I don't think we emphasize God's grace enough. The, the, the fact of the matter is, you do not deserve God's grace. Not a single one of us here deserves it. We all deserve hell, and we deserve it right now. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. There is no great prize to be won in you or in me, as far as the, the holy God is concerned, in, in, in looking at our performance. There's there's not a single one of us that deserves anything from God but judgment and hell. We can't earn that right standing with God. Nothing that you can do to earn that right standing. But here's the way God looks at you. He says that you are a great prize to be won. He says he loves you so much that he would send Jesus, his only begotten son, the perfect one, to die on a cross for our sins. Why? Because he loves you. And his grace is freely given to us. You are saved not by any work that you do. You're saved when you acknowledge, God, I am a piece of work. I don't have these beautiful works. But you are the perfect one. You're awesome. And you died on the cross for my sins. And I thank you. And all that I'm left to do is to throw myself at your feet and say, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. God, I love you. And you know what God says? He says, I, I will have mercy on you. I do have mercy on you. I forgive you. I love you. He receives you to himself. And so all of us have been given something that we could never earn, something that we will never deserve. And God loves you. David Guzik said this. He says, there is nothing that can make us as strong as saying, I am a child of God in Jesus Christ, and I have the love and favor of God even though I don't deserve it. That is the strength, he says, that comes by grace. And Paul is telling Timothy here, listen, be strong in that grace. Now we need to understand that this strength doesn't come as we sit back passively, just supposing that God will simply pour it into our lives. No, he brings his strength to us as we seek him by faith. There is a faith element to it. We have to trust him by faith. We need to rely on him by faith, not in the power of our own flesh, not in the power of our feelings, not in the power of our works, none of these things. And as we step out in faith, as we exercise our faith, and, and just trust God, taking him at his word, This is where this strength comes from in our life, this power that comes in our life. When I say, I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul said this to the Philippians. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He didn't say work for your salvation. He says, work it out. Just believe by faith that you're God's child, that he loves you incredibly, and live your life accordingly. God loves me. I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm I'm a child of the King. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to trust in God. And by faith, I'm going to just step out and live this life of responsive love to the one who gave all for me. And it will revolutionize your life if you will just, re- just stop and just the, 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 the track, the tape that plays in our mind so often says, you're not good enough. You need to do more. God's mad at you. 
God doesn't like you. You don't deserve this. Hey, you know what? The, uh, Jesus said if, if you were to agree with our enemy quickly when we go to court, and when Satan tells you you don't deserve this, you go, you're right, I don't. Thank you, Jesus. Love you, Lord. I'm accepted by you. And so God brings his strength to, to us as we rely on him by faith, as, in, as we step out, as we exercise our faith. And what Paul is saying here is that as we overcome by God's grace, we are now uniquely equipped to lead others. That's the idea. We overcome by God's grace, and now because of God's grace, I'm uniquely equipped to lead others. Now, some of you, by God's grace, you've been delivered from drug abuse, you've been delivered from porn addiction, you've been delivered from drinking. Some of you, by God's grace, you, he, he's, he's enabled you to work through a broken marriage. And you've worked through your broken marriage by God's grace. You're still a work in progress, but, but you are not where you once were. And by God's grace, you're, you're, you are more than an overcomer, as the Bible says in Christ Jesus. You're more than conquerors. Some of you, by God's grace, he's enabling you to become a good father. He's enabling you to become a good mother. Again, it's not that I've already attend, attained that, but I'm pressing on to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me, Paul would say. And so some of you, you've had these victories in your life. And what Paul says is that as we are strengthened by God's grace, we're now uniquely equipped to help other people through the same things that we struggled in, those things that God delivered us from. Now, that's not what the enemy tells us. The enemy tells you that you're damaged goods. The enemy tells you that, that you're broken. The enemy tells you that you're disqualified. When we talk about leadership development, the enemy whispers in your ear and says, well, you can't lead. Look at you. Look at what you look at. Just, have, you, have you checked your resume out lately? You can't lead. And what we need to understand is that, no, when we are strengthened by God's grace, and God by His grace brings us through something, we then need to strengthen others who are struggling with the same things with which we struggle and with the things with, that they're going through. If you've been delivered from sin, God wants to use you to lead other people. You're like, I'm not, I don't know if that's right. I've got a verse. Think about Peter. What was going on with Jesus? He's having a conversation with Peter. It's the Last Supper. And Jesus is going through and he's talking about what's going to happen to him and what the disciples are going to do and so on. And <coughs> Peter, <coughs> excuse me, he's protesting. And he's kind of copping an attitude like, hey, look, everybody, all these other losers will deny you. Lord, I'm never going to deny you kind of thing. And the Lord said, Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But, Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Strengthen your brethren. So what was Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, look, Peter, you're going to blow it. You will blow it. When I planted my first church, I went down to Costa Mesa. I wanted a meeting with, with uh, Pastor Romain, Chuck, Chuck Smith's assistant pastor. And, and um, 
you know, I don't know, it was 1991 maybe. I'm sitting there, I'm meeting with him. And we're getting ready to, to plant revival and, and, and all. And I'm just a, a little kid and I'm trying to ask him a question. And he interrupts me. He goes, son, you're worried about making a mistake, aren't you? I'm like, yes, sir. That's exactly what I'm worried about. He goes, you'll make them. Make them, we did. Jesus is saying, look, Peter, you're going to blow it, man. You're going to deny me. But when you have returned to me, when you've repented and returned to me is the idea, strengthen your brethren. You're not disqualified. You're not, you're not damaged goods forever to me. No, Peter, when you've returned to me, now you're going to go and you're going to strengthen other people. You're going to say, man, I know what you're going through. And see, that's what God wants from every single one of us. Not a single one of us here can forever be disqualified from ministry. I need to choose my words very carefully. Because what I don't want you to hear, if you're caught up in unconfessed sin right now, if you're living in a sinful trajectory in your life, now we're all sinners by nature and by choice. I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm saying if you are, if you are involved in habitual sin right now, you need to repent. You need to come back to the Lord. But you need to understand no matter who you are, no matter where you are, God's intention for you is to to take you, to raise you up, to cleanse you of unrighteousness, to change your behaviors, to change your path, to change your trajectory, and you can become a leader in the body of Christ. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. This is God's intention for you. Jesus says, when you have returned to me, when you've repented and come back, strengthen your brethren. And when, God, with, when, when, by God's grace, you are strengthened, then you are then to go out and strengthen others. Now, how do we do that? We lead them in grace. We lead people by instruction. We lead people by example. And we lead people by a steadfast commitment. And Paul here, he gives... Timothy, these examples, these three examples, he gives them an example of a, of a soldier, gives them an example of an athlete, and he gives them an example of a farmer. And what he's pointing to is the steadfastness of their walk and of their trajectory. He says that we, like soldiers, this is how we need to live our, our faith. What's the idea? That we're always on duty. A soldier in the midst of the, va- uh, the battle doesn't say, ah, it's my coffee break, sorry. I know we're being overrun right now, but I, but I can't pick up that weapon and go on the offensive because the, the, I, I, I get a timeout, I get a break. No, a soldier is on duty. You're always on duty. He says we're to be like an athlete. And, and he emphasizes in regards to an athlete. Now, one of the things that what does an athlete do to compete he trains, and he's in a constant state of preparedness, and he's watching his diet, and he's <coughs> watching his exercise routine and all of these things. But he says also, look, you've got to obey the rules, man, otherwise you're going to be disqualified. So, so you can't be the kind of leader that says, do as I say, not as I do. You have to live your life according to the rules. You have to practice what you preach, in other words. He says, we're also to be like a farmer. And, and, and what is, what is, what's the farmer do? Listen, in order to produce a crop, the, the farmer has to be a partaker of the things that he's producing. Right? If, if the farmer just constantly was producing, but never ingesting, 
what it was that he was producing, he'd, he'd drop dead from malnourishment. So we need to, to ourselves feed on that which we are teaching others. You can't give what you ain't got. Basic, that's leadership 101. You can't give what you ain't got. You know, you want to give somebody the chicken pox, you got to have the chicken pox to transmit it, you know. <clears throat> and so this is the important thing. Now, it's critical that we understand that leadership development is not optional. That's what I want every single one of you to hear. When we say that, that we, as a value of the church, value leadership development, what I want you to understand is that this is not just for the elite sum and not for everybody. No, leadership development is for everybody, and it's a mandatory part of being a disciple of God. See, biblically, we, th- we see three distinct roles in the church. The Bible has, speaks of these three, dis- these three distinct roles. The role of elder, the role of deacon, and the role of a saint. And every single role has its unique roles, or its unique responsibilities for that role. First of all, the church is to be led by elders. Here's what the Bible says, 1 Timothy 3. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, of an elder, of an overseer, they're all synonymous terms, he desires a good work. Verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Paul continues, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, Paul says, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And so elders, basically, the idea, are to be men of high character, the men of, of principle, and they're to have a heart to shepherd God's flock. These are who they are. Paul would tell the Ephesian elders this in Acts chapter 20. He says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What Paul is saying is this to elders. He's saying, look, those sheep that have been entrusted to you were purchased by Jesus' blood on the cross. That's a high and a holy calling. This is a heavy responsibility. I will stand before the Lord someday and I will give an account for you. What I taught from the pulpit. How I instituted the policies and the practices of this church to make sure that you are well fed. That you're cared for. That, that, you, that your, your spiritual life has been prayed through and, and, and addressed by my leadership and how I've executed it. My father used to tell me all the time, usually before he was taking the belt out to spank me, but he would say, Teddy, you don't belong to me. You belong to God. And I need to give an account to God 
for how I raise you. And normally I was just not listening to that. I was just waiting for the belt to come. But you know what? My dad, he didn't enjoy spanking me. But what he had in view was that one day he was going to stand before God. This is the way that we are called to live our lives as Christians, to understand that we're going to stand before God. By the way, because pastors have such a high holy calling and such have, have such a heavy responsibility, the Bible exhorts the church, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Paul telling the Hebrews, look, pastors, they got a, they got a pretty high stress job to take care of you. Don't make it harder on them than, 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 it, than it should be. But he, but he says this, and this is what you guys need to hear. It's not for their sake that you don't make it harder. It's for your sake. Because they're just trying to take care of you. And so, so this is, this is the, 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 the role we see of pastors, the, the leaders of the church, the elders of the church. This is our duty, our responsibility. Pastors and I, we get together, the elders, the pastors, myself, we get together every week to pray about how we're going to care for you, how we're going to shepherd you, what's going on. Some of you in trouble, we, we talk about you by name. How can we care for so-and-so? Well, the next role we see biblically is the role of deacons. A deacon literally is one who serves, and in that respect, that broad definition, you could say we're all deacons in the church because we all serve. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. And so <clears throat> in, the, in the attitude and the idea that we serve, yes, we're all deacons, but deacon is a very particular position that the Bible speaks about. And the deacon's job, their service is to assist the elders, to assist the pastors in the execution of their duties. We see an example of this in, in uh, the book of Acts. Now, it doesn't specifically say that it, it was deacons that the disciples appointed. This is debated. But they were in a situation where they said, wait a minute, you know, gosh, we, we got to care for the needs of the flock. we got to feed them and tend to them. And we got this daily distribution of food, and we're, we're having trouble because some people are complaining that they're being left out. And, and it's distracting us from teaching the Word of God, which is what we're called to do primarily. So we want to take care of this need, but if, if we're the ones constantly doing it, <coughs> this is going to suck all of our time away from our priority. So what do they do? They appoint seven men full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit who are going to appoint, who are going to attend to those, those things. It's conjecture, it's speculation, but you figure seven days a week, daily distribution of food, seven men, one man in charge of every day of the week. Maybe that's how it went down, maybe not. But they appointed seven men full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. I think deacons. The role of the deacon is to assist the elder in that way. Hey, how do we care for the physical, practical needs? Here's the qualifications Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. <clears throat> Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but... Verse 10, let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. 
Likewise, their wives must be reverent. By the way, their, their women is what's, what's in view here, and it's probably not just talking about female deacons, uh, but it's probably talking about the wives of, of both deacons and elders. Um, but likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We follow this process here, by the way. We'll see, guys. We see God's hand uniquely upon them. They helping us in particular. We think, gosh, I wonder if that person should be a deacon. And so we'll invite them to a time of testing. Where we say, hey, we just see what you're doing as maybe God's hand is upon you. We want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. But just to go into official time of testing. And we will test them. We will watch them. We'll see how they're faithful in little. And maybe give them a little bit more. And see how they're faithful in much. And after a time of testing, we will invite them then to come on the platform and to be prayed over and to be officially become a deacon and stand before you and so on. Well, the next role we see biblically is the role of the saints. Most of you. The role of the saints. Here's what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4. He said, he himself, the Lord God, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers... Elders, my, my job, for what? For the equipping of you, the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. Listen, the work of ministry is not simply the work of pastors and deacons. It's the work of all of the saints, right? And, and it's the work of gifted men and gifted women. Insert your name in that statement. Who have been given To the church, God has given you, he's appointed you, he's placed you here in the church for the purpose of building it up and for carrying out the mission of the church. Now, in order to do this, there's a great variety of gifts given to the body of Christ. We see this in Matthew 7, Luke 11, Romans 11 and 12. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, in Ephesians chapter 4, in Hebrews chapter 2. And the Bible says of these gifts that our duty is to both use them and to grow in them. Paul says in Romans 12, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Jesus gave a parable about the talents that that a rich man gave to his servants. And he, and he, he gave these talents and he said, while I'm away, invest them. And he came back and two of the guys invested them and they were rewarded, but one of the guys buried his talents and he was chastised. And the exhortation to us and the implication of that, of that story that Jesus told, that parable, that earthly story with a heavenly meaning, is that we have been given gifts and talents that God expects us to invest and to use for His glory. So we have to use them and we have to grow in them. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And so growing in grace and knowledge is the, is the command for every believer. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that this growth starts very basically. He likens it to a baby. He says, as newborn babies desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. But listen, God never intended for us to stay there. He always intended us to grow. And the Bible teaches that God's will for us is not just to grow and mature, listen to me, it's to become leaders, 
That's God's will for every one of you is that you will become a leader. Listen, let's be honest. You are a leader in some capacity already anyway. All of us are leaders in some capacity. And God's desire is that you would grow and become more of a leader in every area of your life. You say, I need a verse. I'll give you one. In, in, in Hebrews chapter 5, Paul there, he's teaching. We see this principle. He's trying to teach the, the Hebrews about Jesus being our great high priest. That's the context of what we're about to read, okay? So he wants to teach them this, this more mature spiritual concept. And here's what he says. He says, there is much more we would like to say about this, about Jesus being our great high priest, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and you don't seem to listen. Can you imagine me as your pastor saying, I'd really like to teach you guys this, but you're spiritually dull and you really don't seem to listen. Like how to, how to win friends and influence people, you know? It gets worse. He says, verse 12, you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies <coughs> who need milk and you cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So Paul says there in verse 12, here's my proof text, he says, you ought to be teaching others. That right there should tell us, God's expectation of us is that we should grow and then be teaching others. I was so blessed. I came in this morning and I ran out to just get something to eat, get my blood sugar up before I teach. And, and out there in the, in the area where we've got the food set up, I've got, I've got two of my guys, they're faithfully here every morning setting up, one of the guys teaching the other guy going through a devotional, leadership devotional, How, and just before church, and, and I'm, I'm like, thank you, Jesus, it's happening, this is awesome, you know? We ought to be teaching others. Now, I, I, Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, just throw, throw it up, does it all fit on one slide? I never even checked it. No? Is you, there, okay, right on, we'll start with that. Paul says in verse 12 there, you ought to be teaching others, right? This is the duty of every Christian, and I want you to notice three key elements in our leadership development, okay? You see the first one there in, uh, in verse 11, that learning is part of the process. Learning is part of the process. He says, hey, you're dull and you don't seem to listen. Learning is part of the process of becoming a leader. And then in verse 14, we see two other parts of the process. We see that training and developing skills is also part of the process. He says solid food is for those who are mature who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. And so we, we have these three elements in becoming a leader, right? You, there's a learning phase, there is a training phase, and there's a skills development phase. When I was going through paramedic school, we had three phases as well. There was, the, there was the didactic phase, the learning phase. We were in classroom. And then when we graduated from the classroom, then we went to the clinical phase. We went into a hospital. <coughs> Controlled environment where we began to see all of the different things, the elements and so on. And then once we were finished with a clinical rotation, then we went into a preceptor rotation where we were actually out on the field responding to calls with, with a paramedic 
riding shotgun looking over our shoulder as we were actually doing the things and implementing the things in more of a leadership capacity. Now, it's the same way in the church. Here in the church, it starts with the learning phase, okay? For you, you to, to grow as a leader, as God intended, starts with learning, with you committing to, to a disciplined practice of learning through regular church attendance, through a commitment to spiritual growth, being plugged into a home Bible study, being plugged into a women's study, being plugged into a men's study, being plugged into our school of ministry. It's a commitment to growth. And then following that commitment to growth, then there is a training phase. This is where you commit to actually showing up to help. This is where you commit to getting plugged in. This is, this is where you, know, you say, okay, I'm, I'm, I've learned and now I want to start my clinical process. I want to start getting plugged in. Look, you can't expect to become a leader if you're not there. We, from time to time, will have people come up to us and they say, hey, you know what? I think I'd like to teach a home Bible study. Our first question, what do you think it is? Are you attending a home Bible study? No, I'm not attending a home Bible study. Great. Love that you want to teach a home Bible study. Start with attending one. Just start. Let us get to know you. Let, let, let us see you be faithfully committed to a group in, as, as part of a group in a study. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, big jobs usually go to those who prove their ability to outgrow small ones. Brenda was speaking uh, not too long ago and she at a women's um, function, women, pastor's wives thing, she was teaching on the subject of leadership. And uh, she told a story about a situation that happened where uh, they were setting up a woman's event, and there were some people there that were helping, and someone said to her, hey, is there anything I can do? And she said, yeah, as a matter of fact, you can. Can you uh, check the bathrooms and make sure that the bathrooms are cleaned and, and all of that? And the person actually looked at her and said, is there anything else I can do? She's like, no, nothing else you can do. So training means you're helping, you're observing, you're asking questions. You're in the training phase, right? And so you're asking questions. I used to have, a, you know, a, 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 a pastor that would ask me regularly, why'd you make that decision? And he wasn't challenging me. He wasn't in opposition asking me that question. He was asking me that question because he wanted to get it into my head. He's like, I want to know, know why you're making that decision so that I can make that decision, right? And so he would ask me all the time, why'd you make that decision? which is hard for me because I'm more of an intuitive kind of leader, so I would have to go, I don't know. I know it's the right decision, but I have to think about why I made the decision, and I'll get back to you. So it was beneficial for me, too, to kind of think through, and I would come back and say, this is why I made that, <coughs> that decision. Well, finally, then you get to the skills development part, okay? We're talking about the process to become a leader. And you get to the skills development part. You got the learning phase. You got the training phase. Now the skills development phase. This is where you come alongside. This is where you serve. This is where you begin to lead in a specific area. You know, you, 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 you've, it's been preceded by the necessary growth of learning and of training. And now you're committing to take the next step. Think of it like driver's training. When you, when you want to drive a car, it starts with the classroom. You've got to you go through some training. Then you've got to take some tests. Right? And then what happens is you get a permit. You, you don't get your driver's license right away. What does the permit do? It puts you behind the wheel. 
And that's my philosophy for, for leadership development here at the church. I want people behind the wheel as soon as we can get you behind the wheel. It's like, look, it's, and I tell people this all the time, teaching leadership, getting people plugged in to lead, it's like teaching somebody to drive in the country. You stick them behind the wheel and you keep them out of the ditch, right? And so it's a matter of just doing it. Now, you got somebody next to you that can grab the wheel and kind of help you and encourage you, and that's the process. Now, from time to time, we'll get people that'll come up to us and they'll say, look, I want to start a new ministry. I got this idea. I got this ministry, this new ministry that I want to start. And we think that's awesome. And, 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 and we'll encourage that. But a couple of things about that. One, one of the things is, while we appreciate the heart to start a new ministry, it very seldom starts there. We want to we see that the person has been faithful in little. We want to see the person that's been plugged in, somebody that we know, somebody who's demonstrated faithfulness in the smaller things. <clears throat> kind of along the lines of what Paul told to Timothy about the deacons. Let these first be tested, and then let them serve. And so we, first of all, we, we don't just say yes right away. Secondly, a lot of times people want to start something that has no, uh, no yielding to the authority of the church here. And so they, hey, I just, I just independently want to start this, but I don't want to have to jump through all the hoops of, of you know, being submitted to the, to the leadership here. In which case we go, you know what? If God's laid something on your heart to start, that's fine, but we're not going to have anything to do with it, and it's not going to be connected to Reliance Church. And it's not because we're control freaks, it's because we're good stewards. And I want you to think of it like a parent. Somebody just arbitrarily said, hey, I got this great thing, and I want to take your kids to do this or that. You'd want to know every single thing before you let your kids go with that person. You want to have some control over what's going on. You're like, wait a minute, who's driving? Do they have insurance? Are they responsible? Are they a psycho? You know, are they a predator? Are they a sexual predator? Sometimes people go, hey, I want to start this ministry, and, you know, there's, we're going to do child care and all this stuff. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Have they been, are, are they background checked? Do we know who these people are? These are the questions we want to know. So sometimes we'll tell somebody no, and they think, oh, gosh, you're being capricious. You're being, you're being you know, overly, you know, overbearing, whatever. No, we're being cautious and careful with the sheep that God's entrusted to us because I'm going to stand before the Lord someday give an account for you, for your children. And so, so it's not just automatic yes. There, there are requirements that we want for people to step into leadership because there is a vetting process that's biblical. Now, I should have said this up front, but when we talk about leadership development, <laughs> there is no way I'm going to teach exhaustively on leadership development in one teaching. We could spend the rest of the year talking about leadership development. But at this point, I'm just going to cut it off right here. I want to share a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon and ask you a question as we close. Charles Spurgeon said this, Wherever anything is to be done, either in the church or in the world, you may depend, <coughs> excuse me, you may depend upon it that it is done by one man, a Moses, a Gideon, an Isaiah, or a Paul. The whole history of the church from the earliest ages teaches the same lesson. I might add a Ruth, a Mary, an Esther. My question for you is, will you be that man? Will you be that woman? Because that's the Lord's will for you.